ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Five o'clock dinners as well as a vibe. I'm into it. I've been doing five o'clock dinners. Sometimes I don't even have dinner anymore. I just have like a late lunch at 4.30 and then I'm done. That's dunch. It's great. On. Hello, Zan. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. <laughs> Hi, Alan. <laughs> Poor Alan. <laughs> Poor Alan. Oh, yes, it's finally happening. Bang on your one-stop shop for music, art, life and stuff, and it seems for the past, like, several months because marketing works. Yes. Barbie, we've been talking non-stop about it, and finally this week we can reveal what it's all about. I will say this. We're going to talk about Barbie and Oppenheimer, mm. the two big summer blockbusters that have opened today, if you're listening on Thursday. I'm not going to give any spoilers of either. You and I have both seen Barbie. We were lucky to be at the premiere of it earlier this week. Mm. Oppenheimer, I got to see the next night. We're going to review it without spoilers. So if you're mm. like, ah, madly mashing your phone, trying yeah. to make it stop, um, don't worry, we're not going to wreck it for you. But also Oppenheimer, it's history, so um, the spoilers are there for you. That said, I felt like I needed bloody Wikipedia watching that thing, but more about that yes. later. It's a lot of history that I didn't know. Yeah, And three hours of it, in fact. Too uh, long? Ah! Can we just say too long? No, well, for you it's absolutely too long. Far out. Get it right, people. <laughs> for me, I will I will explain that in a moment. But I think that our priority for the Bang Fam this week is kicking off with Barbie. It was the first film that I saw in this Barbenheimer week that everyone's talking about. Which mm. one do you see first? Monday night I went along to the premiere. I was in Melbourne. You were in Brisbane. Yep. What did you think? Oh, my goodness. I don't even know where to start. There were so many feelings when it did begin and and they were great feelings. It was purely nostalgic in so many ways. It it layered it on thick. I feel like the first part of the movie really just laid on that nostalgia so thickly and it was so beautifully done and you're in the game. The minute you're sitting there and they gave us like a little Barbie car with popcorn and <laughs> nail polish and things like that. So, you know, clearly we're already on side and... Margot Robbie is extraordinary as Barbie, perfectly cast. She perfectly plays it, mm. even down to, you know, some of the manoeuvres that she does with her body as if she is Barbie on her impossibly high heels, yeah. uh, which she then loses as part of the film. That's how she starts to realise she's having, I guess, what would normally be in a human way an existential crisis. She starts to have thoughts of impending death and her feet become flat and all of this is considered disgusting in Barbie world. Cellulite as well. Which has all been previewed in the trailer, so there's yeah. no spoilers no there. Spoilers this is there. all we knew so far about yeah. Barbie, all of yeah. this stuff. Yeah, and I don't want to give too much away in the story, but um, the, the film rapidly changes when she, she, I think we can safely say, she goes off into the human realm to find out why she's having these feelings and find the person that played with her too hard to make her have these particular feelings. Mm. And that's where the America Ferreira character comes in. She's uh, one of one of the people who might who may have played with her too hard. Uh, uh, quite like Weird Barbie in the movie too, who they visit. <laughs> and I loved Weird Barbie, who's played by Kate McKinnon. I think she's one of the highlights of the film. Well, we talked about Weird Barbie yeah. a few weeks ago when we were. T- I mean, it was actually like months ago now when we were talking about our expectations and anticipating this film and the fact that. Barbie for many of us had been something that we almost wanted to destroy. We cut mm. her hair, we drew on her face, we bent her legs every which way, which I think you do with a lot of toys, but Weird Barbie represents that, doesn't oh, she? And and that was the beauty, I think, of the film is that it incorporated most of the issues that you would have around Barbie. It doesn't pretend that Barbie doesn't come with her problems and that element of it I adored. I thought... This is fantastic. It could well be an adver- advertisement for Barbie. However, we got lots of layers in it, particularly in the first A part lot of, layers. of the movie. Uh, and, and it really delved into the conflicting thoughts that you might have around Barbie. Um, so I enjoyed it immensely. I've got, I've got so much to say and I don't even know how to kind of bring it all into a concise thought. I, I didn't absolutely love it um, and I'm not really explaining it very well. I they, they, I think it, I feel like they threw so much at the movie that some of the things didn't quite translate, um, and it's difficult to explain those without spoilers. Mm. Uh, but it was pure joy to for me from start 
to finish. It's not something I ever looked at my watch at and went, oh, make this hurry up, which I normally do in all films. Yes. Um, what did you think? Well, yeah, I agree with you. It had to walk a tightrope, several tightropes. Mm. It's obviously, it says on the box, a film made by Mattel. This yes. is the first, as we've discussed, in many films Commercialization creating. of of Barbie yeah. is one of the problems I think it begins with. And it, it seems to ride that quite well. But it still acts mostly. as an ad, you know. Yeah. It still wants people to engage with Barbie again, whether it's as a doll or in the many, I would say now, hundreds or thousands of brand collabs that have happened. Mm. Even if you're an adult, you don't plan to play with Barbie. Barbie's on just about every product that you're buying at the moment, including some really weird ones, like Duolingo. That was a random connection in the what? film. <laughs> <laughs> but the... The film is also a Greta Gerwig film yeah. and she's someone who absolutely wants to be a big studio director and is an incredible writer, actor and director. She co-wrote this film with her partner Noah Baumbach and I don't imagine, even though as it's been reported, Margot Robbie protected them at all costs from any kind of interference while they were writing the script, I have no doubt that there were many conversations that happened throughout the process and at the end, and there was a lot of push and pull about what they could include. I was pleasantly surprised about some of the things they did include. Mm. I was like, whoa, okay, this is pretty amazing. And like all Greta Gerwig films, it was really wordy. It was very clever. There was a lot of double meanings. There was some incredibly meta-cultural references and a few breakings of the fourth wall as well. So... For adults, which is absolutely a huge audience share of this film, it's going to be really rich. But I had a friend of mine ask if they could take their seven-year-old daughter because she's super keen. And I was Mm. like, is it like a Pixar film where it can work for both audiences, where there's kind of clever jokes? Because there is existential crises in this film and there's some not-so-subtle explanations of the patriarchy in this film as well. And I think it could. Like, first of all, it's not very violent, And that's a main thing. You take a lot of kids to some really violent films. There's not really any violence in it. Um, But, yeah, it's a film that just, it does a lot. And in some ways, I think that what you're sort of speaking to without giving spoilers, it's trying to be a few too many things at once to too many people. Trying to be everything to everyone. So I feel like perhaps the, the message of the film is a little lost in the middle, whatever that message may be. I sort of walked away going, what, what, what? other than telling us about how society structured the patriarchy and feminism and also saying that Barbie is a problematic figure mm. uh, and and that perhaps she wouldn't have achieved all these things in that, I, I mean, I never bought the ideal that Barbie was a feminist doll in the first place yeah. simply because of the way she looked. Mm. I think you and I probably agree on that. And to set up this world where it is a very feminist world but, Barbie, all these Barbies were perfect mostly until, you know, they became a little bit more self-aware and they realised that being, Mattel I mean, being self-aware is a selling point also. Mm. Um, Normal Barbie. Yeah, normal Barbie. She didn't really exist. And I love the references to the pregnant Barbie. What was her name? Midge. Midge and how embarrassed they were. She lived over on a hill. (laughs) Having a pregnant doll is weird. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. There was just, there was so much joy in it, though, in terms of the references and the throwing out of the outfits and the fashion of Barbie, all of that. Like, it, it's, it just felt, it did feel like a, an incredibly warm, comfortable blanket. And it played into those beautiful ideas of young girls doing dance routines. Like, what are you doing tonight? We're out doing a, we're going to do a dance routine. and yeah, dance choreo- routine, yeah. <laughs> and then they had, there's a beautiful moment where Ken is, is dancing and it reminded me of those beautiful sound stages in the films of the 40s and 50s where they do those beautiful choreographed dance yeah. scenes and, and the artwork and the, and the visuals of it and the and the lighting it was there were so many lovely references i almost think they 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 tried too hard well i reckon that comes from greta because she's a massive fan of film and i think that she wanted to give these subtle nods and references to to classic hollywood cinema mm. obviously there was you know 2001 the start of 2001 a space odyssey which is just, you know a stanley kubrick film of the classic yeah. um the big kind of plinth and the 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 primates screaming and stuff and that's already been seen in the trailer too and she references that at the yeah. top of the film yeah. and the soundstage is as well, I was thinking, oh, here's another nod. And music as well is a really big part of this film. Yeah. It's not just the great soundtrack on paper of all these incredible artists, but you also have 
the music telling the story, if you're listening to the lyrics, it does have a musical element to it without being overtly a musical, which I really loved. Can we talk for a second about Ken? Because we knew that from the get-go, from seeing the filming of this, that Ryan Gosling would be Ken and we knew he would be amazing because he's Ryan Gosling. But I kind of feel in all the marketing lead-up in the last few months in particular, because all the female stars have been going around and he hasn't been as present and he is friggin' hilarious in this. He mm. steals every scene he's in. There's moments where I'm looking and I'm like, you and Margot Robbie, I can tell you're about to crack up and you're trying to hold in the laughter. Oh, there's one. There's actually so one insane. scene that I think they've left in the film and it's in his dance scene where he literally is cracking up at the end <laughs> and they've just left it in. I was like, whoa, that's funny. It was such a great surprise because I yeah. knew he'd be great, but I didn't realise he'd be that great. And he's just having a ball and he's so... Like, he's a heartthrob and he's just kind of tearing all that apart as well and mm. having a whole lot of fun with it. Without either of them, Barbie or Ken, being at all sexualized in this film, they're mm. absolute dolls. Like, these are the kind of caricature of, the, of themselves and of, of these doll characters. Um, it's, yeah, it's a fascinating film. I reckon that the, the real world is where, you know, the, the Barbie world is a matriarchy and you can see how that works. Um, and it's a heavenly place yes. that you want to live in um, for so many reasons. But the real world is get you, where you get that contrast of the the patriarchy. And even though the scenes in the real world didn't excite me as much, I was like, that's necessary to see this brutal mirror um, of things that I think that we sometimes normalise because we're so sadly used to them. Yeah. Catcalling from people on work sites, men on work sites specifically, um, undermining of women in workplaces, corporate environments where women are the assistants mm. and the secretaries and not the people who are leading the game. And I think that having, you know, someone who's completely green to that or pink, <laughs> Barbie, who just has no idea and is yeah. in absolute shock, almost like shakes us up a bit. And we all know what feminism is, but it was interesting going to the premiere with my, my boyfriend, Jeffy, who is an absolute snag and is an absolute feminist. And I say feminist by the meaning of he believes in equality mm. for the sexes. Um, and even he, he was like, whoa, I saw a lot of things there and I felt seen and whoa, okay. Mm. Things that are just pretty normalised and that happens. And he was like, oh, shit, en masse when you see it all there, which is something that we, I think, as women, I can speak for both of us, yeah. feel and see every day. Yeah. So I sort of wonder about how many people are going to see this, little girls and boys people who haven't necessarily had that normalisation cooked into their brains, mm. men who don't necessarily have this at the front of their minds, um, women who have normalised it as well through years and years of being bloody worn down by the yeah. patriarchy, whether this will sort of shake them up as well. I yeah. don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I, yeah. I still don't know quite how I feel about it. And that's a good thing. I reckon that's a good thing too. And I came off the back of this. First of all, I was a little bit distracted because the buzz of a premiere is a lot of mm. noise and people getting excited. And frankly, the pink ice cream that I ate was so full of sugar oh, that I was pinging off the walls. Yes. <laughs> so sugary. So much pink. I'm kind of relieved that the build-up is gone because I feel like I've been saturated in pink for like months now. Mm. <laughs> I am wearing pink nail polish. Very right? nice. Very nice. <laughs> But I want to see it again. I want to see it so that I can unpack a lot of references because there was a lot of things going on and I feel like it could deserve a second watch. And I also want to go and see it with a bunch of my girlfriends Yeah. Um, and, and see what they think of as well. But funnily enough, I had the same reaction to Oppenheimer, which oh, really? I saw the next night, which I need to – I just still need to unpack everything that went well, on. three hours. That's a lot in there. Three hours, yeah. very dense, and from the get-go you're like, Jesus Christ, this is so tightly scripted and there's so many jump cuts and it's a Christopher Nolan film, which means he plays with time, he goes all over the place. There's scenes shot in colour, scenes shot in black and white. You assume that the black and white means it's quote-unquote in the past, but then that changes as well. So you never quite know where you are. And there's a lot of narrative efficiency in the way that little bits of conversations are captured and then it shoots you into that time and place in order to get you there. And yet it's still three hours long. Yeah. <laughs> that must have been the biggest script ever. It's a talk fest. It's not an Oppenheimer action film. This is not your average summer blockbuster. This is not about bombs exploding. There's maybe one or two big explosions. And if you don't know the story of Oppenheimer, it is the story of Robert J. Oppenheimer, the man who made the atomic bomb, the atomic bomb that dropped on Hiroshima that killed a quarter of a million people and that changed warfare and humanity forever. Yeah. 
a story that hasn't been told. There's a lot of things in this story that I didn't know about. Again, needed to Google the old Wikipedia. Mm. But it's absolutely full of blokes. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. It was a time. It was a time. There's a couple of great performances from Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh, but they're a little bit two-dimensional in their characters, which I just don't think Christopher Nolan writes very good female characters. Killian Murphy, though, incredible actor and makes me want to go and watch Peaky Blinders, which I've never watched mm. before. But the way that his character of Oppenheimer is unveiled is just like a masterclass in character development, the opposite of what he does for some of the other characters, particularly the female characters. It's just so beautifully, I'm getting shivers thinking about it, it's so so beautifully uh, revealed and unveiled and he is in almost every scene and is incredible in this film. I saw it at IMAX. I didn't get a good seat, Miff. Oh, no. I was consumed by this film, but I I highly recommend it and it is um, a phenomenal film if you can sit through three hours. I did have to run out and get a toilet break and I missed some key information because there's so much talking and exposition. Okay, this is good. This is a good tip then for anyone listening and they're going to see it. When is a good time to go to the toilet break? There's no good time. (laughs) Just not there's not a moment where you go, all right, that was a bit slow. Dehydrate yourself before you go. Uh, I'm fifty, I need to wee all the time. (laughs) Take a colostomy bag. (laughs) A tenor lady. Um, yeah, no, it's um it's great. You know what the other thing that I love about both of these films is what what a couple of odd summer blockbusters to have. Mm. I like that we're at this point in cinema and I know that we've also had Mission Impossible a couple of weeks ago, which I still haven't seen and by all reports is a shit ton of action and Indiana Jones, the same thing, much less story development, just kind of like lots of explosions Mm. and action. But these two films, which are two of the most talked about films of the year, they both are full of ideology. They're both about inventions that have had intense ripple effects through society and they couldn't be more different as films, but I haven't stopped thinking about either of them yeah. since I saw them. And I'm excited by that. I'm excited that these are the films that are that are being made. I'm excited that everyone's going back to the cinema too. I are you Tom that. Cruise? Yes. Yes, I am. No, I'm, I'm wrapped. I'm really wrapped because I think it's such a beautiful way to experience films. 100%. Yeah. And probably, For all those reasons, it's And exciting. probably appropriate given the actors' strike and whatnot that's happening in America at the moment that we are finding out that a lot of people are being really duped by the organisations that are making this content. So it's important to go to the movies. Well, these two premieres got their their, their sort of showings in just in the nick of time because Mm. this has rolled through. A lot of the actors now have joined the writers in striking. This has been happening for a few weeks. We haven't sort of talked about it yet because it's a bit of explainsy, but I feel like now that the actors have joined and, you know, just stating the obvious, it's just a lot more visible when you've got 160,000 actors who are mm. tied to the Screen Actors Guild, which is yep. the American Actors Union, saying they're not going to work. And that's not just in creating, but that's in promoting films. The cast of Oppenheimer walked out of the premiere. They started it early and then they walked out at 8pm, um, doing no interviews, not talking about films when I spoke to Greta Gerwig at the press conference a few weeks ago, I was specifically asked when I, I wanted to ask her a question about writing and directing and they asked me to drop to writer because she didn't even want to talk about the fact that she'd written Barbie because that was breaking the writer's strike. Mm. So it's really specific. We're not going to see any red carpets. We're not going to see any interviews. We're not going to see any chat show conversations, but we're also not going to see any of these actors or writers creating anything, which the outcome of which will be felt in a few months, a couple mm. of years' time when they all come through. And some of the things that they are fighting for make perfect sense. Uh, a lot of people who are creating works for the streamers in particular are finding that they don't get the residuals that they used to get when they made content for your regular television channels. And quite often there was, you know, a 24-part series where you would get residuals on that and in that once it's shown again and again and again, you continue to make some money. So there is actually an ability to make a living out of this, whereas now streamers have reduced most television series, I think, down to about (laughs) six to eight episodes and the residuals are apparently a lot less and, and the streamers are refusing to release the numbers of eyes that are actually on 
those programs, they're holding that very, very tightly to their chest. You get paid once. Yeah, and so they cannot say how much money they're making in order for people to say, hang on a minute, this seems unfair. So it's it's quite complicated. It's fascinating uh, and I, I think it's it's worth fighting for for the creatives. But my question is what do we do on our end? Is it is it that we stop watching the streamers for a while ourselves or that we watch the streamers to show our support and for the upper management to understand that this is a vital service and we need to pay people properly for their creative work. I wonder if that's a conversation that's being had yet, what the audience can do to boycott or not to boycott. The other part of this conversation as well is AI, which has been something that's run through Mm. both the writer's strike and the actor's strike. For actors, it's about paying someone like an extra who's in the background that, you know, not at the foreground and therefore can kind of be reused digitally Mm. for one day of work and then using that um, over and over for a Till the end of time. Which is creepy. And for writers, it's about, you know, think about chat GPT and how everyone's really excited about how that's working, but it's like generating scripts um, and making rules around that because all of those systems, even though, and if you've seen Indiana Jones, you know what I'm talking about, it still looks a bit shit or it still reads a bit shit if you use ChatGPT, through our use of them, particularly in the verbal sense, we're making it smarter and better. And it's just going to keep on getting better and better. One of the things that's come out of all of this this week, I think, is the rise of Fran Drescher, who um, it seems from all the memes I've seen has had a strong union heart for a long time. She is the president of the Screen Actors Guild, and she gave a fiery speech on the day that the actors went on strike. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. This is a moment of history that is a moment of truth. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines and big business. Who cares more about Wall Street than you and your family? It was an amazing speech that mm. she gave, the whole thing. I think that a lot of very visible big actors have been coming out in their support. And for some audience members or public people who don't necessarily know that world, they're sort of going, oh, why are these rich people complaining? But the point is that like any industry, these are the visible 1% and they're representing Mm. 99% of people who are literally working on or or below the poverty line. And it's those people who are trying to make a a living wage. And I think also some of those conversations absolutely reek of undermining art and that art is acting or creativity, writing. It's a hobby or it's an interest. It's not a job that has rights and entitlements like any other, I feel like some of that backlash comes from that, whether people realise it or not, and it really irks me. Mm, mm. And I think if you think about it from the perspective of those actors who aren't top tier as well, someone like Luke Cook, who is uh, an Australian actor, content creator, um, he's in Lucifer in the Netflix series Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, like lots of TV series that exist on the streamers I might not necessarily watch, but he's made a career. But he's also saying he makes peanuts because – these companies sign them on for six parts. They don't have the 20-run series. Mm. And those then they have to sign off the next year of their life to this company because they may get another series, but then they don't. So they haven't made any money in their original series, or not much anyway, and they've made... They've, they've shut themselves out for the next lot of work that comes their way. And I think it's quite distressing for them. And he said he couldn't exist without his side hustle, which is obviously his um, his work on Instagram, which he does, which is really funny if you've, if you've seen him. And I think it, it's, it's that. There's all these people that aren't necessarily top tier who are struggling, yeah. who are literally struggling and quite obviously. Um, on an interesting note, though, I wasn't aware of this. Ronald Reagan, who was the president of America many, many years ago, was at one time uh, the president of SAG, the Screen Actors Oh, really? So, he was a union boy. That's interesting. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, that says to me, Fran Drescher for president. <laughs> This could be her step-off point. Who knows? Oh, fuck, I'd love that. Can you imagine? She had style. She had flair. She was there. That's why she became the president. (laughs) I'm here for it.
It's not like a public transport or an airport workers or a teacher's strike. The results are going to be slow to show, but all that prestige TV, all those films that are being made, a lot of productions, and think about all the people who are connected to that who aren't actors, they've all stopped. So time will tell, and I hope that uh, these workers in these fields who entertain us so much, who we literally talk about every week on mm. Bang On, um, get the the right contracts that they deserve. Speaking of prestige television, did you see that The Bear is back? This week it dropped on Disney+, Plus, a good month after it appeared in the States, but it was interesting to see that they put the whole series up so you can be straight in. That's good. I watched the first episode did last you? night. I'm not I'm not ready for it. I need, oh, it's I don't so need stressful. The, I don't need the anxiety <laughs> in my life at the moment. I was like, maybe things are going to sort out. No, nah, absolutely. The, the editing, the sound design, just the anger, the anguish, the stress. It's just stressful. I'm absolutely going to watch it all, yeah. but fuck, it's stressful. Yeah. Fucking stressful. I'm feeling stressed just thinking about watching it. <laughs> There's also another show that's going to be happening, which you pointed out to oh. me. He posts his thirst traps in a leather-bound album. His DMs have postage. He gets the early bird special anytime he wants. If you call him, he'll answer the phone. He doesn't have gray hair. He has wisdom highlights. Florida wants to retire and move to him. He's Gary. And I'm your first Golden Bachelor. It's your golden what? What is Gary <laughs> as a name? Is it Jerry or Gary? No, he's Gary. Maybe his brother's name's Craig. <laughs> oh, my God. As if I'm not going to watch the shit out of this. <laughs> The Golden Bachelor. So I'm thinking an over 70. Yes. Over 65. Yes. A salt and pepper bachelor is coming to American screens. The franchise grows ever more. I can't wait for this. It gives me hope <laughs> that down the track when I'm geriatric and single because no one could put up with me anymore. They bloody better have women of the same age in this show, me. I hope so. I hope they're not 20 years younger. They're not like, I mean, not that that matters, I guess. When it does matter. Overage, but it does Visibility matter. Visibility matters. You're allowed to date whoever you want to date, but yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not discounting 50-year-old women for joining this, for, for, from joining this. Everyone either. should be involved. But yes, if yes. you're going to have an over 70-year-old man, have then have some over 70-year-old women as women. well. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm terrified about this show, but I'm going to love it. Five o'clock dinners as well as a vibe. I'm into it. I've been doing five o'clock dinners. Sometimes I don't even have dinner anymore. I just have like a late lunch at 4.30 and then I'm done. That's dunch. It's great. Dunch. It's great. Perfect. Good for the digestion. <laughs> Feel way better in the morning. You sleep better. All that. Genius. So two hot TV tips this week. The Bear and The Golden Bachelor. <laughs> you can decide which one you dive into. Jerry. Gary. Oh, it's Gary, isn't it? Gary. He's Gary. Gary. Uh, some late-breaking news came through in the last day, which I just picked up on. And I kind of picked up on this because I saw a whole bunch of people coming out and support on social media. Yeah. Just an absolute shit show, once again, um, in this 2023 age of weird conservatism uh, and control or attempted control of sexuality, gender, discourse, all of it. Yumi Steins and Melissa Kang put out a book recently called Welcome to Sex. It's one of the latest in a series they've been doing. Um, Melissa Kang, if you don't know, is the former Dolly Doctor, who was a lifeline for us growing Absolutely. up, right? Yeah. All the questions that we wanted to ask but we were too embarrassed to or didn't quite know how to ask. And they've been working together for years and years. Um, this is their fourth book on a series of topics and they cover things like consent, menstruation, gender identity, all of that. Well, it seems that a couple of big groups, including one of them called Women's Forum Australia, which is a self-described think tank that actually focuses on anti-trans campaigning, mm. has led a campaign to get this book off the shelves and Big W has answered that and taken it off the shelves, leaving it online for purchase but saying that they've had staff members who have been abused. Yeah. And they've removed the book to protect their staff members and customers. Such a sad state of affairs that we find ourselves in, replicating some of the activities that are going on in America with the Christian far right mm. uh, and conservative groups. Uh, I just feel like there is no place for that here. Um, it feels so ugly and sad, especially given we grew up 
in the 80s, Zan. And in 1988, there was a book that came out called Where Did I Come From? Which everyone remembers. Which everyone remembers by Peter Mayle, A Guide for Children and Parents. And this is a book that helped a lot of us. There are things in there that help you explain orgasm to a seven-year-old, explaining the process of conception. They have illustrations of people having sex. It was all very normal. Yeah. We all got that book. It was at school. It was given out. Mm. And I'm thankful for that. Um, And I think... Things have changed an awful lot since then, but those questions were still being asked by young people at that age. We do not need to go backwards because with any kind of understanding of of sex leads to an understanding of consent, leads to an understanding of some of the broader issues. The more open we are about it, the less you are likely to agree to things that you don't understand. Yeah. That's the thing too. The head of this think tank, Rachel Wong, told 2GB Radio that the problem with the book was that it was teaching sex to children. You need to that's teach not, sex yeah, to children. That's literally, that's, without it, what, do you think that without it people are like, oh, what's sex? I don't care. It's literally a primal thing, our attraction to others, the need to recreate. So it's this idea of it's this book is teaching sex, no, our bodies are telling us, you know, compelling us to act on this. And with the mess of messaging that we have with everything that we're going through as kids, finding our own confidence, just literally not understanding what one plus one equals in half the cases. We need these kind of texts. And it's so disappointing for me that uh, such a large retailer that is very much a family retailer has taken it off their shelves, that they haven't stood up and said, you know what, we're not going to stand for this. And the People who are campaigning are now planning on targeting other large yeah, retailers, which is disgraceful. And what trying to see those dominoes fall. And However, that just sucks. I, I do, I do think the employer Big W has done this because they obviously don't want to put their staff in the fire. Yeah, line. I understand. And that. I, I, I get that. And the book is still available on their online website. Yeah, but it's a disgusting state of affairs. I think that this small minority, this very conservative minority, has wielded such power in this country. Just a big love to Yumi Steins as well, who is one of the most um, outspoken, brave and powerful women who has been dragged publicly so many times and has become a real punching bag whenever she speaks her mind and is often speaking a lot of truths. Just want to send big love to her um, who's going through this once again. Absolutely sucks. If why am I playing Nirvana? I mean, you know, no issues, but keen. <laughs> well, that in the nineties they were they were the band that made it big out of all the grunge bands, and yet somehow managed to sideswipe the term sellout. Mm. There was so much going on in the nineties where people who thought they loved music or had an understanding of music, considered anyone who had a commercial success to be a sellout. Sell up. But somehow they managed to bypass that because Pearl Jam copped it a bit. They still slightly bypassed it, but there were other acts that were deemed complete sellouts. Radiohead bypassed it as well. Yeah. They were never deemed a sellout by their listening audience, even though... They were very, very commercial on huge record labels and made gazillions and gazillions of dollars. And there's an interesting article by Dan Brooks, uh, which is on The Guardian, and it's titled, In the 90s, We Were Worried About Nirvana Selling Out. I wish that concept still made sense. I loved this piece. Yeah, it's really really interesting in that I don't think it answers all the questions and I feel like there's a lot of places it could have gone, but it says a lot about somebody's reconciling with their own understanding of music and music taste in that he has now realised that seeing a band as alternative um, was really actually quite a ridiculous idea because the whole point of the music industry is to make things that connect. And surely if you want to connect with someone, you want to sell records, you know, but what's happening here now in, 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 in the current time is that um, selling out is a concept that, that is, is basically – over, but it's important that artists connect however they might want to connect. So the concept of sellout is basically redundant these days, but also giving people what they want. We can actually quantify what people want. And quite often the the person writing this story suggests that it's become a little bit bland. And I don't necessarily agree with that. 
But you do, I mean, you have these conversations a lot where people talk about making music for TikTok, making Mm. music for Spotify, thinking about literally the data where it shows you that people will listen to the first 15 seconds of a song before they press next. People are literally listening to 15 Mm. seconds of a song within things like TikTok. And you see artists, you can hear it in, you know, padam padam, absolute Mm. banger. Absolute TikTok song. That's a song that's made to go viral. Same with Troye Sivan's single, Rush. Oh, All the little I snippets. I love Troye Sivan's new single, I feel a rush. It's so good. Addicted to you. But it goes viral because you can snap any little short mm. segment of that song. And I do think that artists are creating that. And do I you abs- think, though? I, 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 maybe, but I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I think it's one of many things that Because yeah. I don't think Lizzo art. starts out writing a song for TikTok. It just becomes a song of TikTok. I reckon it's a very complex area and there's yeah. no one answer. But I yeah. still think that it swarms around in it. But just the fact that you can now quantify that. So previously in the 90s, in the olden days, and I can hear the harp going oh. as we montage yeah. back, you know, sales were one thing, but also it wasn't as concrete what was hitting. There was a kind of reaction in terms of the mm. way that bands were successful and, of course, the Nirvana success meant that there were hundreds, millions of, of imitators that followed mm. and grunge became something that went mainstream. This was the first time that an underground scene had gone so mainstream and completely coloured that decade or at least mm. until sort of the mid to mm. late 90s. Uh, but now we have concrete data where you can literally see what people are streaming, how they're streaming it, what they're buying or not buying, how they're consuming music in a much more accurate way. And that science means that people look at that and go, this is working, so let's make Mm. more of that. One of the things that stuck out to me in this article was that this kind of idea that Dan Brooks, who wrote it, um, said that obviously you want your entertainment to entertain you. you. You don't want to always be challenged. You want to be, you know, you want to enjoy it. Paradoxically, though, it is less entertaining to watch a musician or, for that matter, a writer or a filmmaker or a comedian do only what they think you want. We prefer the work of artists who, to some degree, do what they want. That's probably because such work is more likely to surprise us and the element of surprise is necessary to feel like the culture is moving forward. Mm. And that's something that I think about a lot when it comes to music. You want people to go, I'm going to do something completely different here and blaze a trail and upset things a little bit. But also that artist in the back of their mind is like, what if people don't like it? What if they don't buy it? My career, my livelihood mm. relies on this. Mm. You can't, you're kind of caught in this you catch-22. You need to sell out in order to survive And as audience members, days. we want it all. We want to you know, enjoy it but also be challenged. We don't yeah. want them to keep making the same records over and over again. It's really freaking hard to be an artist. It is really hard to be an artist. And there was a time, I think, when people who decided who became famous or who got a record deal did take more of a risk because there was that element of chance that is thrown in. But let's also not forget that there were places like the Brill Building in the 50s and 60s which were song factories. So this has always been a practice. It's Mm. not a new thing. And they bought beautiful music to our ears that we see now in hindsight, although considered very, very commercial at the time. In hindsight, it was extraordinary craft, extraordinary songwriting, Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Mm. You cannot surpass the genius of that. Carol King, all those people, Neil Diamond started in places like these, songwriting factories mm. that gave us extraordinary musical groups. So for me, I'm a little bit in the one camp in that, yes, everything is quantified these days and it is creating a, a kind of a monoculture in terms of the sounds that people are listening to. But I'm not entirely sure that's necessarily a bad thing. The quality may be seen down the track, whereas now it sort of feels like a lot of noise, a lot of noise. There's a lot of art and a lot of creativity still in that, but there's also a lot of shit as well, let's be honest. <laughs> It's a difficult one. It's a really difficult one. It's a really interesting piece, though. We've always tried to make money out of music. It's always been a commercial business. Yeah. And I think it's easy to look back at our time as if it was, as if it was better, and say that creativity is not. It's not as fecund anymore, because of the nature of the way we consume and how we can quantify it. But I don't know. I still think. I still think that's there. The artistry is there. It will find a way. It always does. Have we always had these conversations? I feel like at the moment we're talking a lot about the way things have changed, where we're at now and what it means for the future. Do you feel like that's always been a case in art because Mm. things have always changed and there's been some sort of technology that's disrupted the system of how we think about how we make music and art and tell our stories? 
Does it feel like there's just more of it going on now or is it just because we're living in this time and there's more avenues for us to read these juicy think pieces? Yeah, I think maybe that. I don't know. Bumper bang on today. Oh, yeah. We are ready. Bit of fashion for you. And this is one that I think we can all get on board. As we talked about the beige fluences a couple of weeks ago, this is a fashion trend that I think it'll be pretty easy to pull out of your cupboard if you want to be on top of things, if you want to be of the moment. Um, You want to be giving coastal grandma. Coastal Grandma is a look that is essentially Anne Hathaway on the weekend. All cream, a cable knit sweater. This is going to be on The Golden Bachelor, isn't it? It is. Oh, my God. (laughs) Coastal Grandma, The Golden Bachelor. She's going to win. She'll have a house in the Hamptons. She'll have equal, you know, like I'm sure this guy's probably quite successful because they always are if they're a bachelor. Uh Because, you know, they've got to have. Are they? Well, actually, no. It's slim pickings these days when The Bachelor comes on. It's. Yeah. It is a weird thing to flip The Bachelor just really quickly to go back because it's often a place where people go to make their fame. But if you're at the sort of in the twilight years of your life, why are you going on The yeah. Golden Bachelor? Because <laughs> you want to get a root? Is there any other reason? I know. You want someone to pay for your funeral? <laughs> was that awful? That was awful, wasn't it? Uh, no, nah, it's good. Anyway, go back to <laughs> Coastal Grandma. Coastal Grandma is an aesthetic that, uh, yeah, apparently we can all do and we can embrace by just being essentially pretty freaking boring. What do you wear? It's not essentially about what you're wearing. It's about the vibe you're giving off and that is that oh, you, it's have, a vibe, is it? you have a house <laughs> in, uh, it's a little bit preppy, you know, that sort of older lady college look. So mm. a college shirt with a beige pant, a comfortable loose slack. A Ralph Lauren polo. A Ralph Lauren polo. Uh, it's been going around for ages and I thought it would disappear, but it's it's stuck around and I think it's because we want we want cosy, we want comfortable, we want freaking boring. I'm into it for home, but I don't think it's an aesthetic that I would like to actually totally embrace. But so many people are. It is huge. But it I think the good thing about it is it's it, there is a there is a benefit to it. It is allowing I guess icons who were 50 plus to become icons. Yeah. Again. Uh and that is not necessarily a bad thing. We've got, you know, your Lily Tomlins, your Jane Fonders, get to do a bit of coastal grandmother look and we're living for it. And that's fine. But it is very white as well, I've got to say. I don't see too many people um, of diverse backgrounds embracing coastal grandma. It's all a very beige, white it's vibe, It's very beige, it? white vibe and yep. it's very white wine. White wine. It's very, it's very uh, only just one glass of white wine <laughs> on the holiday. It's not 15, 15 glasses and <laughs> trashing yourself. It's those types. It's a soothing palette of colours and it's a, it's well-behaved. The 15 glasses are Joni Hill's girlfriend's friend's worst nightmare, isn't it? Yep, yep. <laughs> the one you have lunch with yeah. for fun. <laughs> the ones you want to have lunch with. Exactly, exactly. It's weird that you brought Coastal Grandma in this week because off the back of our Kramer Core discussion last week, I got a lovely email from Susan who is long-term Bang fan and she wrote me a gorgeous email with some beautiful pics. She said, Hi, gals. My near 18-year-old son has been traipsing through op shops searching for the perfect, quote, fit, which she says is teen speak for outfit. He wanted the Kramer look, which he or I didn't think of calling it until you said it this week, but that's exactly what it is. I decided to enlist my 84-year-old mother-in-law in the search. Having recently put her beloved husband into care, she has many of his old suits packed away. Oh. One in particular caught our eye as being the one. My son immediately loved it. Put it on with pride and will be wearing it to his friend's 18th this weekend. Yes! Here's the kicker. The last time that suit was worn by Pa was on their wedding day 50 years ago this coming October. Needless to say, sentimental tears around. Fashion trends may come and go, but this one has given my family unspeakable joy. And it's a gorgeous brown suit that her son is pairing with a crisp white T-shirt, updating it for the now, very Kramer. That's right. A very Kramer core and just beautiful to see that connection. And didn't we all love our grandpa's suits? As going through the 90s where I wore a lot of like hard yakka pants and was kind of dressing like a, you know, very androgynous way, very loose suits, the old sort of 70s 
shirts from your grandpa mm. were a real vibe. So I love that that's continuing now into 2023. Oh, it's beautiful and economical too. I mean, we should be reusing these garments. I can smell the mothballs. I know. <laughs> but quite often they were beautifully made because they were a very special thing. And you only had one or two suits if you're a gentleman, if you were of modest means. Yeah. And that was usually a wedding suit. And that is so beautiful. And I think that's why we keep going back because they're quality and they're made to last. Yes. And says a lot about the way we approach consumer culture now, doesn't it? I can't imagine keeping a suit that would last that long necessarily these days. Um, I don't think I've got any suits. I don't think I ever had a suit, to be honest. But I've still got a denim jacket that I bought when I was 16. That's amazing. Yeah. It was the most expensive thing I'd bought. It was 120 bucks. Oof. I got it from... Um, it's worth $7,000 now. Do you remember? I can say this because it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I bought it from Australia on Collins, which oh, was yes. like the shopping centre in the 90s. I like food and I love fashion. My baby <laughs> thinks mm, they're my passion. I'd like to do Australia on Collins oh, wow. with you. <laughs> I didn't get that ad because I grew up in the country. It had... A four-level sports girl in it, Miff. What? <laughs> it was a big deal. What? But I bought this. I won't tell you the brand. It wasn't sports girl. Is it Stuart Membry? Because that no longer exists anymore. <laughs> and that was big in the eighties. And I still have it, and that is because it was well made. And I bought it when I was sixteen, and amazingly, I still fit into it too. So. Has it got shoulder pads, or is it? No, it's a denim jacket. Just... It's a cropped denim jacket. If you've Love ever seen it. me in a cropped denim jacket, I've had that for almost. Thank you so much for your beautiful message, Susan. Shout-outs to a few people, and you know who you are because I've responded to you, who wrote us gorgeous emails this week. We always, I always, check the bang box. That's I right. Forward and on Zan the emails does them on. to Miff. And, and um, I always read them. You are beautiful, If you beautiful get forwarded people. on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a real gatekeeper now, aren't I? What are you banging on about this week? Oh, I'm banging on about a great little podcast that I've been listening to on and off for quite some time, and I thought it's time I banged on about it because... It's so informative and educational and I think as we, with all the kerfuffle around the Commonwealth Games and thoughts around the Commonwealth and us being a part of it, uh, I think it's really important to look at the history of the empire that created the Commonwealth and this is a podcast called Empire. It comes out of the UK and it is all about how empires rise and how they fall. It is hosted by William Dalrymple and Anita Anand and it is very British what it does is explore how incredibly problematic some of these empires and how they created their wealth were. Mm. Incredibly po- problematic. Um, I've just been listening to the slavery episodes and uh, if you think about the UK, its entire wealth was built on slavery and that is a commonwealth that we are a part of, mm. republic now, <laughs> as I put my hand up. Um, but it also talks about when the enslaved took on Napoleon and, um, but I've just been learning so much. I dip in and out uh, and it is terrifying and shocking to think about what happened in many hundreds of years ago. But uh, the wealth that we see and the culture that we see that we has been created and everything that we rely on, even here in Australia, the structures, all come from wealth that was created by slavery. And it is utterly shocking and I think we need to know this stuff. It's called Empires. Does it go beyond the British Empire? Empire, empire singular. So it's so just it's, the British Empire? No, no, no. It's about all sorts of empires. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, it, but it is, it is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Unreal. I'm into that. Yeah. All what right. Did, I'll put that in the show notes. What are you banging on about? I'm banging on about a long read. It's not that long. It's a medium read, I'd say. And I wanted to talk to you about it, but then as I was reading it, I was like, I just think that everyone should read this. Oh, good, because I forgot to read it. I forgot to read this one. You put it in the notes and I just realised you were banging on about it and I forgot to read it. I've made your job easy for you. Great, thank you. I just think that it's something that Bank Fam, if you're up for it, read it. I really loved it. The title of the article is We've Reached Peak Girl and it's written by Delia Kai in Vanity Fair and speaks about this kind of reinvigorated longing for girlhood um, or, as she says, or more accurately, a willful and incentivized luxuriation in the trappings of this imagined girliness. Barbie, a case in point. Mm. Think about all the books that have girl in their title. And just this sort of 
girl on screen, gossip girl, new girl, dairy girls, Gil- Gilmore girls. There's so much girl in culture, cool girl bands, corporate girl, girl dinner. Girl power. Girl power. It doesn't exist um, for the, the male gender and also these kind of things that are rising through TikTok like, um, what was it, cottagecore, mm. uh, trad wife sort of stuff. If we talk about the bimbo of Y2K, all that kind of stuff, it's just, it's a rich article. There's a lot to dig into and it kind of makes sense of why and how we're craving for this return to girlhood, how conservatism, particularly in America where Delia is writing from, is on the rise. Abortion has been made illegal in many states. The Supreme Court is stacked against women. It's just there's a lot going on. And we think about Yumi Steins and Melissa Kang's book. All of this stuff, it's all existing in a big swirl and this article speaks to it in a really big way. There's no way I can dissect it with you right here because I think it's much better for you to experience it. Mm. So that's what I'm banging on about this week. I loved it. Oh, I Very love Very much that. around the, the Barbie phenomenon but then just goes deeper into so many thoughts I've been having around this obsession with girl yeah. um, in so many ways and for so many reasons. Why? And, um, and how do we get here? So we've reached peak girl. Really great long read. Medium read. Not that long. Not that long. Not three hours. Great. Uh, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Hey. What a week. It's been a big one. I've loved every second of it, though. I'm not going to miss the build-up to Barbenheimer, though. I'm no. glad that it's done. Yeah. I feel relieved. I feel relieved that we've seen it. Um, it opens everywhere today, so you can make your own decisions if you want to see either of them. But maybe we'll be able to talk about something different. Hang on now. <laughs> A lot of Barbie. I'm almost exhausted by the Barbie Barbie promo. I was glad when it was over. Give me I, monochromes. I, yeah, because I felt sorry for all of them. Actually, they looked really. I mean, they didn't look, ever look tired. They always look perfect, and no one can maintain that. Yeah, good on you, gals. I'll see you next week. See you next week. See you next week. See you. Sound a bit aggressive. See you. Shit, what have I done? See you. Thanks. on. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.